So my responsibility is to take you all to Sydney and to you know, stand up for Sydney and defend Sydney's um, <laughs> reputation. So my first point is that Sydney was a different ball game from Melbourne. And I'm not, uh, oh gosh, where are these? That's it. So here are the three artists that I'll be dealing with. Um, and I start off by saying that Conrad Martins, oh, they're the places they painted in. Conrad Martins, blue and gold and uh, a leisure lifestyle. Uh, Sydney, from the time it was settled by Europeans, was characterised by its harbour, by its uh, semi-tropical climate and uh, a, an outdoors holiday style of life. So you have little cabins at Coogee, you know, holiday cabins, uh, you know, of someone, a poet, not a painter, but nevertheless, what's the difference? Um, by the 1820s, you know, here I am um, at my little rustic retreat, um, watching the sea, thinking about life and death. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, some of these subjects that we're going to be talking about were well and truly explored, um, you know, by other artists and in a similar way. So what in Sydney, Impressionism's favourite subjects were already culturally resonant and Sydney, in fact, had its icon, an Impressionist icon, the, the blue and gold, the um, uh, outdoor lifestyle, the holiday kind of rather slow way of life. Melbourne, a modern go-ahead city built on gold and in the grand style of the British Victorian era, lacked an equivalent identifying visual icon, nor did Impressionism give um, it an iconic image. However, the casually given label, the Heidelberg School, gave Melbourne the reputation of being the home of Australian Impressionism. The profile of art in the two cities differed in other ways besides subjects. Melbourne had had a public gallery since 1861, Melbourne had a tradition of art, criticism by non-practitioners, among whom James Smith was an entrenched power broker. Melbourne had a state-funded art school since 1870. Art in Melbourne was dominated by oil painting and sculpture, by styles and standards of assessment that were European and rather consciously geared to academic high art. But art was not a paying proposition in Melbourne. The painters whom later generations revered as founders of Impressionism in Australia were obliged to support themselves by other work. In Sydney, the conditions for art were intriguingly different. Art affairs were more or less in the hands of artists. The State Art Gallery was newly established. The art schools, including the Art Society's classes, were privately run. The more influential art critics were practitioners of art. Don't you just love him? Isn't he a modern man? Um, among their number, George Collingridge and Julian Ashton were prominent leaders in the art com community, Ashton in particular. Head of the Art Society's art classes, president of the Art Society, trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales from 1889. Another 
un-Melbourne-like aspect of Sydney's art scene in the 80s and 90s was that it was dominated by professional illustrators. Melbourne had plenty of them, but they weren't the dominant force. A number of British and Americans were employed by the picturesque Atlas of Australasia, the local bulletin. Uh, we've already had that lovely Archibald connection. The Sydney Mail, the Illustrated Sydney News, and so on. Charles Conder was employed by the Illustrated Sydney News. The top illustrators commanded high salaries and they got the respect that Australians give to people on high salaries. As a group, the illustrators were the only artists to earn a living through practising art. Judging by prizes and prices, watercolour painting was valued more highly in Sydney than oil painting. Drawings were exhibited as art and had a high status. Styles and subjects were influenced by the illustrator's cosmopolitan practice that absorbed ideas and attitudes from the modern movements in Europe and the United States. In Sydney, it was important to be up-to-date and in the know. Condor, too, in his black-and-white illustrations in 1887 and 1888, experimented, experimented with mannerisms he saw in illustrations in the American Harpers and Century magazines, and with Japanese narrow formats, flattened perspectives, zigzag compositions, and the use of montage. Thank you, Daniel. I illustrate his imaginative use of the Japanese macabre in the heading for a page of illustrations to celebrate Sydney's centenary. The fruits of a friendly rivalry between artists were noticed in the Art Society of New South Wales's exhibition of September 1888. The same outdoor subjects had been tackled by several artists whose works showed a tendency towards bright sunlight, midday light in fact, a golden yellow and purple blue palette and an aesthetic interest in the broad brushwork and sketchiness that were signatures of outdoor painting. The blue and gold colour scheme had a long tradition. I sh showed you Conrad Martin's um, um, who's, you know, painted many Sydney Harbour watercolours. He lived on the North Shore. Julian Ashton employed the same palette of blue and gold in his own watercolours from where it spread into the oil paintings of Ashton and his circle. So they're um, slightly later by the same artist. Now we have Condor's Fisherman's Bridge, Double Bay, 1888, in the exhibition. Condor after he was invited to join a select sketching group comprised mainly of senior illustrators, listened to the older artists discussing their difficulties in making oil paintings free of the influence of the watercolour technique. He wrote wisely to a friend that it wasn't a problem for him. He was all of 19 or 20. On the contrary, Beginning at this early stage in his career, Condor translated the luminosity and white ground of watercolour into his oil paintings. Two small paintings of Bronte Beach show Condor experimenting. In Bronte Beach, he cre in this one, he created effects similar to watercolour washes. We have a look at the painting and see what I mean. In the other small work, he took advantage of the square touches of stiff oil paint and uh, painting them in different blocks of colours. Melbourne did not lead Sydney's move towards Impressionism. 
Tom Roberts did not step out as the leader in Sydney's art affairs until the mid-1890s. The Box Hill, Beaumaris and Heidelberg artists' camps, not the first artists' camp in uh, Melbourne in any case. Heidelberg had had artists' camps in the 1870s. But they had their equivalent from around the, at least as early as 1883, in artists' camps in Sydney. So there was one founded by um, uh, Hopkins, Charles, um, at least, Livingston Hopkins, Hop, of an illustrator employed by the Bulletin, just near where he lived at Edwards Beach, Balmoral. This is um, B. Menzies, uh, he, was, he, had, he shared with roommate of Condo, and here's his little um, um, thing about that, uh, the tea tree camp. Um, so I'll show you Condor's Balmoral Beach. Um, the camp is just behind um, in Edwards um, Beach, um, was painted while he was staying with other artists at the artist's camp that Livingston Hopkins had founded some years before. Um, and here's a photo, the same beach, the artist's camp is visible in, those, in the background in this photo of Balmoral Beach. From above that beach, Charles Condor painted that. Not Charles Condor, sorry, Conrad Martins. So that brief introduction was to show the background in Sydney as it related to the friendly rivalry between Roberts, Condor and Streeton. Condor described Roberts as leading the modern movement in Melbourne. Whereas in Sydney, uh, Condor had looked to the cosmopolitan group of illustrators and to his teachers, Alfred Daplin, who um, was um, noted in 1882 in reviews that he was an Impressionist, and Julian Ashton, and to a newly arrived Italian, Girolamo Neri, whose stylish approach to oil painting was something of an inspiration in Sydney from 1887. Condor's atmospheric departure of the Orient owed a debt to Nelly's brush technique. He emulated the way the Italian painted a groundwork of zones of various colours, softly fused, over which he painted the details of the scene broadly and almost in monochrome. Nelly, from the window of his studio, painted a scene of George Street at dusk that was greatly admired by Sydney artists. It showed the pavement streaming with rain and lit by the splintered reflections of gas lights. This sketch, a wet evening, well, it nearly had a way of repeating himself. Um, the painting I've just described wasn't painted until 1890 after Condor painted his. Doesn't matter. It would have been similar. Condor, too, took a vantage point from above the scene from a veranda at the hotel at the corner of Phillip Street. I've marked it in red in this um, photograph. And from there, he looked across the corner of the quay to the Orient Wharf. Nearly's atmospherics combined with the Japanism of a rainy theme. In the style of Pierre Loti's imaginative novels about Japan, Condor inserted Japanese motifs into the picture, or rather hints. The, the hair dressed high in the Japanese manner, a flower in the hair, a sash around a woman's waist that looks like an obi, a basket of oranges carried on a vendor's head. This was the scenario in Sydney for Condor when a new friend, Tom Roberts, um, arrived from Melbourne on 19 March 1888. During Easter, they painted together at Coogee. 
This slide gives a visual indication of the relative sizes of their paintings. The two works have been compared by most writers on Australian Impressionism, Virginia Spate beginning the tradition by comparing Roberts's naturalism with Condor's decorativeness. She decided that the indications for Condor were not so much inability as a lack of complete interest in Roberts' naturalism. And for Roberts, that it could she, he finally accepted a certain degree of abstraction in his landscape painting. Later, Patrick McHackie summarised the general opinion that the paintings show a striking difference in sensibility. In, places, in place of Robert's muscular amplitude, Condor paints a scene with intimate charm. The first blocking in of the subject is especially relevant to the question of influence. I asked Michael Varco Cox from here and Stuart Laidlaw from the Art Gallery of New South Wales to examine the paintings and tell me how they had been put together. Michael's X-rays of Condor's painting show the ellipse of the bay originally swung all the way back to the left edge along the lower shore, as in Roberts's painting. The woman wore a small flat-topped hat, similar to that worn by the woman in Roberts's painting. And in the first session of work, she was already painted in some detail. At that stage, she was slightly smaller in the scene, or rather she was positioned within, as uh, with most of Condor's paintings, he tends to play, have a look at the exhibition again, he tends to place his figures in a kind of indeterminate uh, middle ground rather than in a foreground. The transition from foreground into middle ground was less distinct in this first working than it now is. In reworking the image, Condor made the beach paler, so separating it from the darker foreground. He pulled the woman into the foreground, lengthening the skirt a little and extending the hat to a point was sufficient to adjust the scale um, in the whole picture to bring about that change, and the child furthered this effort to focus attention on the foreground. On the left, the land curved upwards to hide the water, and dark foliage was added to further close off the view of the bay. So the viewer was encouraged to scan across the foreground, following the left-right movement of bodily gestures, postures, and tea tree branches. The changes potentially owed much to Roberts. It's evident that Condor worked out his ideas on the canvas, and which was his practice in other paintings as well. Neither painting represents one day's work. Condor, over several sessions, painted veils of one colour over another, successfully modifying the tonality of the work, lightening it. Michael has compared the veiling of colours to Whistler, who did the same. I think it could have been inspired, equally well, have been inspired locally by the transparent effects Condor saw achieved in watercolour and sought to um, achieve in his own art. Roberts, said conservator Stuart Laidlaw, painted his canvas over several sessions. There was minimal underdrawing, merely a charcoal line denoting the hill in the sky, and um, his manner of blocking in the subject um, means, uh, well, anyway, each, um, he blocked in each large area of the composition, starting from the top. The hill was painted over the sky. The ocean was brushed in at least twice. The darker blue st can uh, still to be seen in the upper region of the painting, Maybe the original blocking colour, downwards the sea, was heavily reworked in colours graduating from darker to whiter towards the shore. 
Across the lower two-thirds of this area, the final pink and blue colours are considerably lighter in hue than the colour underneath. Most of those final touches were added after the tall tree was painted in. Foreground details such as the grass, tree, bushes and seated figure were painted over a first rocking in of off-white sand. Subsequently, several further touches of sand were brushed in. Scrutinising closely, one can see where the marks of this second working come up to the lower left edge of the seated figure in the foreground, whereas on the other side it's equally clear that the figure was brushed over the first layer of sand when some of the underpaint was already dry. Interestingly, the second layer of sand appears to have been painted at the beach rather than, than in the studio. Here is our next demonstration of uh, you know, grains of sand in um, this second layer of um, working of the sand. We find a lot of sand. Roberts's painting has its own poetry expressed through design and the muscular immediacy of brushwork. It's distinctive for the poise of the small upright woman beside the tall thin tree. The vertical line of the tree from bottom to top of the canvas manages to amplify rather than interrupt the sweep of the Pacific Ocean from side to side of the canvas. Two tea trees are obliquely in line with the breaking waves at the inner end of the bay. The trunk of one curves forward, the other curves back, echoing the movement of the incoming and outgoing water. The idea is echoed by another detail. A woman on the beach, small but beautifully rendered, bends from the waist in the incoming direction towards a child who inclines the other way. A contemporary postcard shows foreground trees, not strikingly tall like those drawn by Condra and Roberts, but similarly upright and with branches lopped. In several paintings before this one of 1888, Roberts employed tall, isolated trees. We've already talked about that. To characterise Roberts as an artist, I think of him as having an inner idea for a composition rather than waiting for an idea to come from the subject or from any other um, source of stimulation. He returned to certain compositional themes over the years. Uh, Humphrey mentioned one this morning, the, the dancing girls down the middle of the room. Um, but, so I think Tom Roberts returned to compositional images. You know, he had a mental template. And um, whereas Streeton would return to places, and places were to Streeton a kind of talk about memory and desire. Um, um, so think of Gardner's Creek, think of the sunny south, the silhouette of framing trees. Was one of sorry was one of those um, templates I think for Tom Roberts. He returned in 1899 to Coogee and painted up the bay again, again framed by those trees. And um, another one of those templates I think is for him is this a uh, wall. The, the, the composition rises up like a wall. There are some really remarkable ones in the last room, but you only have to think about uh, that lovely gardener's uh, sorry. Think about in a corner on the McIntyre. Think about the breakaway. Um, think about this beautiful, beautiful painting, again painted in 1899, of the camp at Sirius Cove. Condor's preference. I mean, now I'm really talking about, you know, the feeling that you get about an artist? I don't know if we're allowed to after Michael's talking, but I think Michael does the same, actually. I think Michael gets a feeling, don't you? Where is he? Definitely, thank you. 
Um, so Condé's preference was for a flattened perspective with subjects positioned at the bottom or the... Oh, damn. Well, um, okay. Um, so I will forget about his preference, but I've probably said it anyway. To sum up the comparison between the two paintings, oh, I think I won't even sum that up, okay? We'll get on to Streeton. A little more than two years passed. Then in June 1890, young Arthur Streeton made a first visit to Sydney. Condor had sailed home to England. Roberts was on one of his retreats from city life. And for the first time in two years, Streeton was alone. Within days of arriving in Sydney, he visited Coogee. What a lovely little place. Sand and colour and pretty children shall do some good there, I think. The composition he sketched in a letter to Roberts three weeks later was the Blue Pacific. In this and its pair, Sunlight Sweet Coogee, he expressed his idea of sand, colour and pretty children with exuberance. Considering Streeton's mood of nostalgia, Sunny South was a lonely act of friendly rivalry. The title quoted the first painting he'd seen Robert's painting at Beaumaris, The Sunny South. Streeton knew Condor's Coogee Bay from exhibitions in Melbourne. And on this visit to, in, to, to Sydney, he saw Roberts's pair to it, holiday sketch at Coogee, in the home of the photographer Walter Barnett, and wrote to Roberts, your picture of Coogee looked very good the evening I was there. Typically, Streeton found in his subject an energy to match the brisk rhythm of his brushwork. The characteristic Streeton mark for translating a scene to canvas was a dash rather than Monet's shorter comma stroke. However, the principle was the same. It was a craft skill indicative of eye-to-hand coordination, personal to Streeton in the way that a style of batting or bowling is personal to a skilled cricketer. He was to be acclaimed for the splendid assurance of his attack. In Condor's considered view, Streeton was a genius. By comparison with his friend's good taste and highly developed artistic sensibility, Streeton's talent was strong, but it was raw. Theirs, if you like, was cooked. His art was vitalist. Theirs was aesthetic. There was something blatant about his art. We may not agree with the conclusion, but see the truth in the observation made by one critic. There is a monotony in the broad dashes of colour, which indicates sea, cliffs, sand, rocks and figures alike. There is no distinctive treatment of the different objects, nothing but the bare colour to represent their diverse natures. Now that criticism of Streeton was of course made of the Impressionists in uh, Paris. The fruit of Streeton's apprenticeship to Roberts was apparent in the graceful still glides the stream. That um, was the painting that brought him to Sydney it was when it was acquired by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. But in those first Sydney paintings, I think he reverted to the vitalism that was native to him and to the ocean subjects that Roberts first saw him painting standing out on the rocks at Beaumaris. The keys to his achievement were his skill with the brush and habit of constructing an image from what he looked at. Pragmatically, he found a way of composing that suited a look-and-put approach, matching the format of a painting to the main lines of his subject. He found the long, narrow draper's board suited the purpose. It's not possible these days with the zoo buildings 
and enclosures into which I couldn't get to find the exact place high enough up the hill. <laughs> but this will do, won't it? So you have pinch gut, gut lined up with the end of Cremorne and um, that hill, you know, beside, um, you know, at the end of the gardens um, behind. So we know he was higher up where we can't go anymore. Thanks to research by the Sydney Historic Houses Trust and another conservator here at the NGV, Melanie Vela, who found and identified that house in um, this curious painting by Streeton. It was, um, we were able to work out that this was painted from the home of the photographer, Walter Barnett. Um, interestingly, Sydney's 1890s way of composing a scene was the same as a photographer uses when framing um, through the lens. George Rodney Cherry, a friend of Robert's and of Streeton's, visited the Curlew camp in the 1890s and took this photograph along the shore towards the harbour. Streeton himself painted this unusual view several times. Streeton in the 1890s made Sydney his own. At his hands, the well-known iconic harbour and ocean subjects acquired vitality and freshness. The blue and gold colours were personalised and given um, and became known as Streeton's colours. Um, Streeton conquered Sydney, transforming a long-standing popular image of the city and its lifestyle into um, his own art, into a high art. Thank you.